Well, good morning. It's good to see you here this morning. You may wonder why I paused so much. Does he forget that he's got to say something this morning? Halfway intelligible? No, it's because we decided to go ahead and practice what we preach. We're in our series Outside the Box. And just the other day, Pastor Trevor was slotted to speak in our traditional room. And he started to feel really crummy. Um, he did test uh, negative, but we, we thought just out of precaution that uh, he shouldn't do that. He shouldn't speak. So what we're doing is a lot of people, production, our tech people ran around yesterday, and they are able to stream this message right into our traditional room. So welcome traditional room to the service or welcome to me into your service. However you would say that. So glad that we are here. Two different rooms, maybe some different preferences in worship, but praising the same God. And so it's really exciting to be able to do that. And they were super gracious at nine o'clock to uh, participate in that. And uh, yeah, thankful for our technology. It's a bit outside the box. So we're happy to do it. Also, welcome to those of you, if you're joining us at home, on your couch, in your car, or at the coffee shop, wherever you may be, I think that God has something for us today. Why don't we do this? Why don't we pray? And I want to pray um, kind of with the thread of the second song that we sang, pray about God's revival that God would pour out his spirit on us. I think in this series, this is a great opportunity. Um, God's gonna challenge us. He's gonna challenge me. He's gonna challenge our leadership, you, uh, to think differently, to feel differently, to lean differently into the world based on what he's done and who he is. And I just pray that we would um, be receptive to that. So why don't we pray to that end and that God would send his spirit and do some revival right here in our midst. Father, we do thank you. You are the God of revival. You're the God who revives us each morning, each day. Your mercies are new. You send your spirit to refresh us. You guide us in your paths, in your ways. You lead us to streams of refreshment. And Father, I pray that we would be a people who are satisfied with your presence and in your love. We drink deeply from your grace. I pray that you would cause us to see who you really are, to see ourselves a little more clearly, to think differently. Father, as you challenge us through this series, and as we see the New Testament wrestling with what it meant to be a community of faith, may we wrestle well, and may we be a people who embody the grace and steward the message of Christ well so that people around us may just be intrigued. Would you send revival? Would you cause us to humble ourselves? as we, your church, gathered in this room, in our traditional room, and gathered all over this country and the world, ask these things for your great name and for your sake, we pray. Amen. In 1981, a tornado touched down in Roseville, Minnesota, shattering the storefront of a little store known as The Sound of Music. Richard Schultz was the owner, and he was left with boxes of stereos and TVs, almost untouched, but he had no storefront, and he had all this merchandise he had to move, so he had to think outside the box. He spent all his money on advertisement, and he advertised tornado sale in the parking lot the next day. Cars lined up for two miles straight, and he sold out of all of his inventory. He learned something that day. He learned a few things that he kept in his back pocket. Advertise like crazy, have name brand merchandise, and list it at a price that consumers would like to buy. He used that money and got some loans, and he invested 
in 40 concept stores from 1982 to 1988 that we know as Best Buy. He kept that mission. We're going to continue to advertise like crazy. We're going to have name brand products and we're going to do it at a price that people would like to buy and can afford. He kept that mission, but he continued to think outside of the box. In 1989, he began Concept 2 stores. They did away with the sales-driven culture. It was now a customer service-based culture. In 1995, they shifted again. Concept, Concept 3 stores were open, full of snazzy ways. I wanted to say snazzy. Ways to learn about products. Touchscreen kiosks when you went into the store. Simulated car interiors. You remember this? You could go in. You could sit down in a car interior, hit play on the CD player, And you could hear and feel the subs of the stereo. They had gaming areas that people could come try out the latest system and the latest games. And then again, they shifted and thought outside of the box in 2002. And in 2003, they instituted what we know as the Geek Squad to help all of us, or maybe some of us who are a little bit more technologically challenged. They held on to their mission, but they changed up their mode. And Best Buy continues to think outside of the box. People who think outside of the box know that they have to because they need to continue to survive and thrive. They know that they have to get away with, fra- get away with phrases that you know, keep you in the box like, we've never done it this way and that will never work and that will only cause failure and problems. Being outside of the box means that we have to adapt well to our current circumstances. I like to find inspiration from well-known leaders. I think one of the best leaders in the universe is Michael Scott of The Office. His second principle of business says this, you have to adapt, react, readapt, and apt. It's very inspiring, isn't it? How well do we adapt When challenges come our way, when challenges enter into our relationship, how well do we we adapt? When someone says to you, and I've heard this before, and they say, you're in the box. It's not a compliment. It's not a compliment. They're usually saying something like, you're stubborn. You know, you're refusing or you're unwilling to change. Or maybe just maybe you're stuck in the past and holding on to something that's actually getting in the way of your future flourishing. You, I, got to get outside the box. And the box is simply a metaphor for our preconceived notions, the way we think about God and life and others and self, our presuppositions, all of those things. We like our box, but if the box teaches us anything, it teaches us this. If we do what we've always done, we'll get what we've always got. Students, close your ears because it's not great English, but it sure does sound good. If we do what we've always done, we'll get what we've always got. And sometimes we use this approach in our relationships and we wonder why we keep coming across the same challenge and we keep getting the same outcome. And we just think, oh, if I just work harder, if I just double down, if I just, this is the strategy, it's gotta work, I'll just put more effort into it. And yet we keep getting the same outcome or maybe in our career, we come across the same challenges, we keep getting the same outcome. Perhaps it's time to think outside the box. And in the book of Acts, and in the book of Acts, that's where we'll be this morning, we see one of the most significant pivots in redemptive history. 
the death and resurrection of the eternal son of God ushers in a new chapter. The page has turned. It's a different chapter. There's a different setting. There's new characters introduced. The Holy Spirit, this new covenant community, aka the church. The mission is the same, but the mode and methods are going to change and shift. And the people of God are going to grapple and they're going to struggle and they're not really going to get it completely. And I feel like we're in the same boat. They're gonna be invited to rethink who God is and what God is up to and how God works because they've boxed him in. And similarly, we box God in and we box ourselves and others in. And God, as far as I understand him, is consistently trying to challenge and press on those categories so that we might be a people who think and live outside the box. And then today, If you have your Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter one. If you have a device you wanna click on, you can follow along in Acts chapter one. We'll go through the first eight verses and then we'll jump a little bit into chapter two. But what we're gonna see is that God himself moves outside of the box of the temple into the presence of a people. We're gonna look at why is that significant and what does that mean for you and for I. So Acts chapter one, Verses one through eight, here we go. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? But he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And if we are gonna be a people who steward the mission and message well, but continue to get out of the box, the first thing we have to do is we have to move forward and not backward. We have to move forwards and not backward. You see in the very first verse there, Luke is writing this and he's writing it to Theophilus and he says, in the first book, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And if you're a Bible underliner, then you can go ahead and underline that phrase, do and teach. Or if you can highlight it on your device, go to town, do and teach. He says, in the first book, now Luke wrote two books, the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. When the the New Testament was being compiled, I'm not exactly sure why we inserted John in between those, but it's a two-part series. It goes Luke-Acts. And Luke says here, Theophilus, I wrote you in the first book about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And automatically, the readers would have sensed attention. Yeah, but how's that gonna continue? Jesus isn't here anymore. Jesus died, rose again, and he ascended. And that's what Luke is getting at. The, the way that, that the mission, mission is gonna continue because Jesus is gone is through the Holy Spirit and through a new community being created through the birth of the Holy Spirit, the church. 
This is how the mission is going to continue. This is how all that Jesus began to do and teach, who he began to heal, who he associated with, who he hung out with, who he ate meals with, what he taught, the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plains, all the parables. How is that going to continue? It's you and I, through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why the title of this book of Acts is the Acts of the Apostles. Luke is saying, this is the mission 2.0. It's continuing. It's still moving forward. Jesus left, but God is not done. And we have to move forward, not backward. It says that he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. He stayed with them 40 days by many proofs. I can imagine Thomas probably more than once. We have one record, but you have people in your family like this. Teachers, you have students like this. It's like, hey, Run that by me just one more time. I didn't quite get it, so let me get this straight. I wasn't tracking with you. You died, they shoved a spear in your side, and you bled out, and you stopped breathing. They buried you, and then you rose again. Did I, did I get that right? And Jesus stayed with them for 40 days, and he convinced them through many proofs. You say, how convinced were they? They were so convinced that Jesus actually rose from the dead that history tells us that all but one of them was martyred for their faith. You don't do that for a hoax. You don't do that for a lie. You can cover up a lie for a while, but lose your life for a lie? That's pretty unreasonable. They were so convinced that Jesus had rose from the dead that they were willing to give their life for this mission and this man. And Jesus stayed with them and he convinced them and they began to spread the word of God. But then guess what? He says, you're gonna receive the Holy Spirit. And then this is what they say to him. They don't quite get it. They're still living inside of their box and their constructs aren't making sense to them. And they say this in verse six, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Do you know what they're saying? Hey, are we going backwards? Like, can we go back? Like we've heard stories about the good old days. The good old days when David reigned over the kingdom of Israel and we had protection and security from all of our enemies and we had enough provisions and nobody was oppressing us like these Romans. And so can we go backwards? Are you gonna restore that type of kingdom? And don't you love Jesus' answers? He, he like rarely really answers a question. Like rarely ever. It's like, I don't know. What is he? Did he answer the question? That was a really skilled way of sidestepping that question, Jesus. Like sometimes people up here will tell you like there's three answers to prayer, yes, no, and maybe. Like I just don't find that in the gospels. I find like a lot of, I don't know. What did he just say? And so Jesus answers their question and he says, it's not for you to know times or seasons, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be future tense. We've gotta go forward. We've gotta keep moving. We're not going to go backward. This is a new stage in redemptive history, a new chapter, same mission, different mode. You see, Jesus was not what they expected, but greater than they imagined. They wanted Jesus to overthrow Rome. They wanted Jesus to restore the former glory of the political power of Israel. And Jesus was not what they expected, but greater than they imagined. He knew they had a greater foe. You got to get, get rid of Rome, the oppressor. He said, I'm going to get rid of sin, the true oppressor. You got to restore us and our identity, our national identity, and bring us salvation. Jesus said, no, it's going to spread to the Gentiles. This is a message for everybody. Jesus was not what they expected, but greater than they imagined. And I have found that Jesus consistently is 
teaching me this, that I box him in with my constructs and my categories, and then he begins to shatter those categories and say, I'm not what you expected, and I'm greater than you ever imagined. We've got to go forward. And I know this is challenging. I know this is challenging. We have seen Judeo-Christian values shift from the center to the fringes, what's felt like that. And some people are still grappling with the wake of that. What are we doing? How do we go backwards? It used to be a place where people could pray in schools and, and there was a 10 commandments and things like that. And, and just recently, my kids couldn't, couldn't do a certain research search project on Christianity. They could do it on all the other world religions, but not on Christianity. Here's the thing. We've shifted. Times have changed. We can't go backwards. We have to go forwards. But I want to be sensitive because that's a real grief for people. And I want to say this, grieve well, and let's keep going. Two great threats to the future of the church are fundamentalism and progressivism. These are two great threats to the future of the church. You see, these words are fine in and of themselves, but you know, as well as I do, anytime you put an ism on the word, then it becomes trouble, becomes dangerous. Like, it's good to have fundamentals. It's good to know what we believe and why we believe it, and it's good to have a high view of scripture. In fact, when I was being interviewed for this job, Pastor Jeff uh, called me on the phone. It was uh, two Decembers ago. And I remember we talked for about two, two and a half hours. And he wanted to know my fundamentals. What do you think about this? What's your theology of humanity? What do you think about sin? What do you think about sexuality? What do you think about salvation? What do you think about the scriptures? It was a key question for him. What do you think about the Bible, wanted to know my fundamentals. And me and Jeff and the church here, we have the same fundamentals. We agreed upon those. I said, but something I'm really passionate about, Jeff, is putting it in a way that people in the watching world can understand. I have an old school heart and a new school mouth. I wanna speak in such a way that makes sense to people who maybe didn't grow up in the church. And see, it's not wrong to have fundamentals, but fundamentalism says this, we can never change. Nothing can ever change. Those were the good old days. Those were the way it was supposed to be and we've got to go backwards. And that's a challenge. And if fundamentalism says nothing can ever change, then progressivism says everything has to change. You see, all that old stuff is bad. All that tradition, all that stuff is just, it's just we need to toss it out. We've got to keep moving forward. We have to be progressive and we do need to adapt and we do need to go forward, but not at the cost of the good news and stories that we've inherited. We were given reliable eyewitness testimony. They're trustworthy. We can stand on them. So if the bones are good, we hold on to them. We keep moving forward. Fundamentalism says we can never change. Progressivism says everything has to change. Both of them make mistakes the same, but different mistakes. And they're a threat to how we go forward well. Dave Kinnaman, he wrote a book in 2012 called Unchristian. And he worked with the Barna Group. And what he did was he polled um, a bunch of outsiders, people that said that you're not believers. And he said, you know, what do you think about Christianity? What do you think about the church? And based on his poll, they came up with this. This is what people think about Christians. They think that we're hypocritical, that we're only focused on getting people saved. They think that we're homophobic, sheltered, that we're too political, and that we're judgmental. 
And friends, I don't know about you, but I would love to work really hard at breaking outside of that box and tell a new narrative, a winsome narrative, holding on to truth, but leading with grace and understanding as we go forward. And we can do that. We can do that when we hold on to the reason we got here. When we hold on to the mission, we're free to shift the mode and the method. When we're laser focused on our reason for reaching, we're free to shift our strategy for reaching. And we've got to move forward, not backward. Secondly, if we're going to be a people outside of the box, we have to allow disruption to our present order. Now, if you were to take a vote on all my three points of the sermon and you were to vote for what is your least favorite, I'm going to guess that number two is going to be your least favorite point in the talk. We have to allow disruption to our present order. I don't like disruption. I don't do well with being inconvenienced. I don't do well with disorder. I am a guy who likes routine. I like rhythm. My wife will tell you it gets me in trouble. I don't do well with spontaneity. You might think I'm really fun and outside of the box. No, I like routine and structure and control a lot. In fact, so much so that the smallest things cause me any type of disruption. Like if we're gonna go out of town, two days before that, I will just go right into my head and I'll be like, no, I can't do it. I'll just go there. My wife's like, oh, you're going into out of town mode now? Cool, I'm just bracing myself. I'll get out of it when we get there, but I'm gonna go into this mode. You know, When the kids transition out of school into summer, I don't do well with this disruption. The smallest thing from fall to winter, it sets me off. I don't like disruption. You probably don't like disruption, but we need it. Sometimes we choose our own disruption. You graduate from high school and you choose a college that's far away, maybe on the other side of the country and you transition out of school. That's a disruption. That'll mess with you. You take a core relationship to the next level or you end a core relationship. That's a disruption. It's challenging. Marriage is a disruption. Kids are wonderful. I love them to death, all four of them, but they're a disruption. When me and my wife had our first kid, it was like, yeah, disruption, but this is amazing. It's two on one. We got this. And then we had a second kid, disruption, and it was two on two, man defense. We could work it out. But then we had a third kid super disruption and we had to go to zone defense and then we had four kids and we had to go to prevent defense some of you'll get what i'm saying on wednesday you send me an email with the subject line ha ha i'll know you got it but sometimes disruptions happen to us loss of a loved one loss of a job divorce pandemic. It breaks into our present order and it disrupts us. We don't like that. And the key question for us is this, when that happens, what is our posture? Is it surrender or is it resistance? Is it surrender or is it resistance? As far as I understand the heart, that makes all the difference in the world. And I'm not saying God caused a pandemic, but there is a correlation to our ability to handle disruption and our growth process. 
Look at Acts chapter two, verse one. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, disruption. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting, disruption. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. That's never happened before, disruption. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance, disruption. They were speaking in such a way that other people that they didn't know their language and other people could understand them, it caused a disruption in the crowd. So then in verse 14, but Peter, standing with 11, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose. That's what the crowd was accusing them of. Since it is only the third hour of the day. Some Yahoo in the crowd says, it's five o'clock somewhere. And Peter says, It's third hour. It's nine o'clock in the morning. They're not drunk. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And then he quotes the prophet Joel and he says, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And God is saying, I'm doing something new. It's a disruption. It might sound strange. It might feel strange. It might sound weird. Will you embrace it? Can you allow it to happen? You have to understand that the disciples in the early church, it felt like theological betrayal for them to believe what they believed. It was a disruption and they grappled with it. In fact, most of the New Testament, I could argue, is them grappling with what the resurrection event meant for them and how to reach others. Fedor Dostoevsky wrote a book called The Brothers Karamazov. I own it. I've tried to read it. I got five pages in. He was Russian. That's all that needs to be said. But in the book, he has this long poem. And it's about Jesus coming back during the 1600s, during the Spanish Inquisition. And Jesus shows up during the Spanish Inquisition. He begins to heal and he begins to preach And he begins to tell the good news and all the crowds get it. They gather around Jesus and he's drawing a crowd. But the grand inquisitor who represented the highest authority in the church at that time didn't like it, arrested Jesus for heresy and brought him in to question him. And one of the first things that the grand inquisitor, the authority of the church says to Jesus is this, why have you come to disturb us? Why have you come to disturb us? We don't like disruption, but often it's exactly what we need. And friends, when I wanna stay in my comfortable box, it's usually that sentiment or various forms of it a thousand different ways, a thousand times a day. Jesus, why have you come to disturb me? I'm in my routine I'm doing my thing. Why have you come to disturb us? I was reading an article this past week, and I want to talk to you for a second about the cyclical nature of transformational growth centered around order, disorder, and reorder. We like order, and order is not necessarily a bad thing, but it's not good for our spiritual health, and so there has to come disorder into our life, disorder into our spiritual life, disorder into our relationship, and then we are invited to move forward into reorder. You guys know this. This happens in your relationships naturally. 
You, you know this because you have these great times when things are easy going and everything's clicking and you're super connected and it's wonderful and you're thankful for those times, but, but you know this, those aren't the times when you grow the closest, is it? It's the hard times. It's the losses. It's the conflict. It's the seasons of disagreement. It's the seasons of perhaps walls that were built up that you're working really hard to tear down. Those are the times that bring us closer together. We need the disorder. It brings us into new ways of being. Pastor Trevor talked last week when he closed out our Beating the Odds series, and he said uh, there was a statistic that said most couples don't make it past the first eight years of marriage, and I would argue this. It's because there was order and then disorder was interrupted. They didn't pivot on that to go into reorder. People say that you're gonna be married probably four to five times in your lifetime. The question is, will it be with the same person? We have to relearn and rethink and recategorize and shift and be flexible and spiritually nimble in order to go forward. So we have to allow disruption to our present order. Lastly, if we're gonna be people who live well outside the box. We have to trust and receive the new normal. We have to trust and receive the new normal. Lately, my family and I, we've been jamming on Mario Kart Wii. We hooked it up downstairs and uh, we've been racing on that. And I get the the uh, old school controller with the uh, steering wheel and our house gets loud and gets rowdy and we've been trying to win all the characters and win all the bikes and all the carts. And the great thing about uh, Mario Kart is that it saves your progress as you go along. Anybody grow up with a old Nintendo? Yeah, you play Mario Brothers. You remember that didn't save? You remember that you turned it on and you started at world one. And if you turned it off, wherever you were, you had to restart at world one. And I remember me and my brother, when we got a Nintendo, we were jamming on Super Mario Brothers and we were going along and my mom was like, okay, you guys have played enough video games today. You need to go outside. And we were like, okay, but we're gonna come back in and play. And you cannot turn the Nintendo off because we're like on level seven and Bowser's on level eight. And we got to get to level eight. And if you turn it off, you will waste all of our six and a half hours of playing time. We weren't that good. (laughs) And we went out to play. And I remember there were several times when either out of absence of mind or spite. (laughs) My mother turned off the Nintendo and we lost all that progress. And I remember these conversations going something like this. You guys to play, you need to play less video games. You can't make a living playing video games. It's not true anymore. And I find myself wanting to say that to my kids and to my son. And then I look up all these colleges that got esports and that they give scholarships for esports and that people can get their college paid for by playing video games. And here's the deal as much as I want to resist that and think to myself, this is bad, that's dumb. It's on the scene. It's a new normal. It's happening. I'm forced to grapple with it. Now, my kids are probably never going to get an esports scholarship, just saying, but it's on the scene. What do we do with it? That's a small example. What about larger examples of new normals that come our way? We, we, we were hit with a pandemic. We had order and then we had disorder. How will we teach? How will we go to church? How will we work? How will we parent and teach? What will we do 
and it was disorder. And I don't know about you, but for months, it was internal chaos for me. And now we're coming into a place where maybe there's a light at the end of the tunnel, where maybe towards the end of this year, next year, there's gonna be what? There's gonna be a new normal. There's gonna be a reorder. We're not going backwards. We are going forwards. How can we trust and receive? Where we don't listen primarily to the voice of the news and the media, but we trust and receive the new normal because we trust and receive that God is behind the new normal. You see, to the degree that we really trust that God is reigning and ruling and bringing all things to an end for his good purposes, to that degree that we actually trust that he's got something good going on in the universe and it's just not all bad, to that degree we will be able to trust and receive the new normal. We need to be people not of the past, not stuck in the past, not saying we've got to go backwards, but we also don't need to run so fast to say we've got to be living into the future. We've got to keep progress going. We've got to be people who are presently grounded in the moment. As C.S. Lewis talks about that we actually put footprints on the grass when we walk on it. How do we do that? We trust and receive. When we do not accept the present reality, we will not be present in reality. And if the world is crying out for anything, I think it's for a rooted and a grounded and a non-anxious people who are present, who tell a different story. But just so we understand, just so we understand what God is up to and how difficult this was for the disciples and the early church to wrap their minds around. Let's look back at the end of Luke's first volume in Luke chapter 24, 44. This is the crucifixion of Jesus. This is what he says. It was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon for the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. What's the relationship of this and Acts? The curtain of the temple. It was this curtain that that separated the Holy of Holies from the other holy place where the presence of God, the spirit of God would have dwelled. Only there's no presence of God in this temple at the time. Hold on, I'll get there in a second. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. So what is the connection? Why is God sending his spirit and moving out of the box of a temple in the beginning of Acts. You remember all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, God called Abraham and he said, I want you to leave your country, leave your father's household, go to a new strange land, I'll show you. I will be with you, I will bless you, I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. Through you I will bless all the families of the earth. Abraham leaves, he has kids, they have kids, there's kids, and then they have Joseph. And Joseph, you remember Joseph, he gets down into Egypt and he becomes a great powerhouse and the family comes down into Egypt and they're fruitful and they multiply and then they become slaves because it says the Pharaoh forgot Egypt, forgot Joseph and they're stuck in Egypt in slavery. And then God raises Moses up to rescue them out of Egypt. And then we have the book of Exodus and he takes the people of God out of Egypt and they're supposed to go directly into the promised land, but they don't because of fear. And so they're sent wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years, but Moses stops by the local sporting goods store and he gets the biggest tent they can find and he brands it the tabernacle and he builds the tabernacle and guess what? God's presence descends. 
God's spirit descends and he fills the tabernacle and he fills the Holy of Holies. And this is where God dwelt. And there was a high priest there and he would meet with the presence of God once a year on behalf of the people. This is where the people would bring their worship. This is where the people would bring their prayers, their sacrifices. This is where God's house was. And then finally through Joshua, they enter into the land and they establish in the land and then they get a king and they go through Saul and then they get David and David says to God, I want to build you a house. And God says to David, no, 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 I'm going to build you a house. Someone's going to come from your lineage. Who's going to forever sit on your throne, King Jesus. But God says, thank you very much, but I'm going to let your son build me a house. So Solomon builds a temple and you remember in Chronicles, he dedicates the temple and what happens? The spirit descends. The presence of God descends and the temple is filled with smoke and fire. There's no sermons. There's no songs. It's so thick just because God's there. This is where worship happened. This is where the presence of God is. This is the temple. And then the people of God forfeit the right to steward the mission that God gave them because of sin. And in the book of Ezekiel, we find this, these haunting words, the glory of God departed from the temple, Ichabod, the presence is gone. He left, never to return. That's a problem if you're a faithful Jew. That's a problem if you're a faithful Jew because where do you go worship? Where do you go and take your sacrifices? Where do you go meet with God? And then they reconstructed a temple, but guess what? No presence. Until maybe a bit of a foreshadowing, a baby named Yeshua was born and he's instructed, his parents are instructed to take him to the temple in Luke chapter two. And in Luke chapter two, Jesus is in the temple and Simeon is dedicating the son of God inside the temple, but he didn't remain there. And then in Acts chapter one and in chapter two, what does it say? The spirit of God came down like tongues of fire and rested over the apostles. And now God moves his presence from temple to people so that where two or three are gathered in his name, there's temple worship, there's temple presence. So that where one of us goes to the ends of the earth to take the message of Christ, there's temple worship, there's temple presence. This is where God dwells in and through people, in and through you and I. This is how Paul puts it in Ephesians 2. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built, listen to the architectural language, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Peter says, we're living stones. We're living stones. We're the hands of Jesus. We're the feet of Jesus. We're the voice of Jesus. We're the eyes and ears of Jesus. We're the sound of Jesus. We're the tears of Jesus. We're the joy of Jesus. We're the laughter of Jesus. We're the hugs of Jesus. We are the embodiment of the presence of God for the watching world. All because God wanted to get outside the box. And he wants a people now 
who will live lives outside of the box. And if we want people to meet a God who is outside the box, we must first live lives outside the box that are different, that they're different, that our lives and the tone of our voice are categorized by love and grace and mercy and compassion, that we hold on to the truth that we were given because it's good truth and we move forward with gracious speech and behavior, that we offer forgiveness to those who deeply hurt us, that we seek unity with those we deeply disagree with, that we speak truth when it doesn't just profit me, but it costs me something, that by the Spirit of God, we call out ourselves and our camp first. And in order to do that, friends, we're gonna need a power that's not our own. That's why the Holy Spirit gets poured out because we can't do it in our, of ourselves and we need to live transformed lives. People are still looking for proofs today that Jesus is alive. They're reading our lives. They're reading us to see if he's real. And may we live lives truly outside the box. So in the, in the box this week, There's a rock with a cross on it. It's the first activity that you can do or you can do with your family. And it's meant to symbolize this. God's with you everywhere you go. Everywhere you go. So maybe you switch it up. Maybe one of you takes it to work one day or sits it on your desk. If you're a student, maybe you put it in your backpack and you're reminded, I wanna be different to make a difference, but I need a power that's not my own. And God is with me. Wherever I am, there God is. Let's bring that message and mission to the world. Would you pray with me? Father, we've been, we've been given so many things. We've been given so much goodness and grace from you. We've been made participants and stewards of your kingdom of justice and love and mercy. And I can get in the way. I can hinder that with my resistance. I can hinder that with my small-mindedness. I can hinder that with my cold heart. So I pray for revival. Just as the apostles experienced the outpouring of your spirit, may we today continue to live in the fullness and outpouring of your spirit. God, for some of us here, it's hard to go forward. Please give us courage and faith. God, for some of us here, it's hard to hold on to the truth that we've learned. Please help us trust. Father, I pray through this series, you'd break our categories. You'd break our boxes. And we're gonna construct them again because that's what we're up to, but you're gonna continually bend and be gracious to us and invite us to think and feel and lean and live differently. And we thank you for that. You're so merciful. We praise you in Christ's name.